This is Dear Analyst, episode number 50. And in this episode, it's going to be a special one. I can't believe this is number 50. Didn't think this would go this long. But um, all for, for all you data and Excel nerds out there who are listening, it was really special treat this time. Normally, it's just me blabbering on to the, the episode. But for this time, decided to have on uh, Sean Wang, who works at Amazon AWS. And we're going to talk about everything from Excel, VBA, to no code and some other projects he's working on. And um, if you're listening on the Capiche audio, I'm not sure if Sean's um, audio is gonna come through, but if not, just click in the uh, show notes and you'll get the full episode later with his audio. So Sean, appreciate you coming on very last minute to uh, to the episode. Uh I appreciate you inviting me and congrats on 50 episodes. Uh, that's a huge milestone. Uh, you're halfway to 100 and then you can call <laughs> Seth Godin and he'll, he'll come onto your podcast. Uh, oh, right. I remember it's, that. It's an yeah. honor and uh, and uh, appreciate that. I think if you shouted me out a couple of times on, on your podcast and uh, yeah, it's, it's really nice to, to dive into the data Excel world. Uh, I used, you know, I kind of used to identify as part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now I'm more into programming, but uh, it's, it's a great thing you're doing. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, just to give you some background, I have talked about Sean. Um, his Twitter handle is Swix. Is that the right way to say it? Yes, sir. Swix. Yep. Yeah, I've talked about Sean a couple of times because he's been on a few episodes that I listen, a podcast I listen to. You know, including uh, I think Syntax FM, and um, I forgot the last one I heard you on. But uh, you're you're definitely Shop very talk. yeah. Shop yeah. Talk Show. Yeah, you're all all over the place. So. Um, I just exchanged a few messages on Twitter and thought it'd be interesting to have Sean on board because I didn't realize that he had such a big Excel and spreadsheet background. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So uh, let's just get right into it. Um, I mean, I'll link to your bio in the show notes, but really wanted to dig deep into your, your experience as a trader and also as an analyst. Um, And I wanted to just, if you can quickly walk through that period of your life really quick with, uh, with folks. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I So my first career was in finance. So I graduated from a business school and I went into, I, I took a year to find my way, but eventually went into investment banking. Mm-hmm. So you do a bunch of, uh, you know, corporate models, uh, balance sheet stuff. Um, and then eventually found my way to uh, interest rate derivatives, where I started working on the uh, the Excel library that, that we're going to talk about, uh, where I was pricing and trading billions of dollars of derivatives uh, based on the Excel formulas that I was writing. <laughs> um, I'm still, still a little bit nervous uh, talking about it now. <laughs> and, uh, and then I moved to, I moved to uh, that was in Singapore. I moved to London to trade currency options uh, and more exotic derivatives. Uh, and then eventually moved to, um, San Francisco to trade tech stocks. Um, and uh, that was my buy side career in, in a hedge fund. Um, and then eventually basically burned out of finance and, and, and then switched to coding full time. Mm-hmm. And when, when you say you were trading, how much of your time was spent actually trading versus working on you know, your, your VBA script, your Excel files and optimizing right. your system? Right, exactly. So, so I would say um, it's kind of, the 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 analogy that my my senior trader was saying was uh, 
it's kind of like becoming a Jedi. So one of the rites of passage of becoming a Jedi is you build a lightsaber. And once you build the lightsaber, you just use the lightsaber. You don't really, you know, work on it that much anymore. So I, I worked on it when I was kind of learning the ropes and onboarding. And then, um, you know, that dropped from like, let's say 80% of my time to maybe like 5% of my time. So I was, I was more of a trader than I, than I was, uh, you know, Excel monkey, but uh, <laughs> I still, you know, was the expert in, in my team. Okay. Gotcha. And when did you move? When did you realize, I'm guessing you got uh, familiar with Excel from your banking experience, but when did you realize you could actually build things outside of the traditional Excel interface, like with formulas and stuff and moving over to VBA? Like, what was that light bulb moment for you? Oh, it wasn't, I mean, I was exposed to this idea from college. Like we had a class okay. where we were introduced to VBA. So it wasn't like anything new. It's, it's just that when I, you know, I found the opportunity at work that we needed it to do more things than we could do just in simple formulas. Then I was like, the natural next step is VBA. So uh, yeah, I mean, I was, I was exposed to it from college. Okay. Uh, so before we get into this script in a little more detail, can you tell us like what this script was supposed to do? Like what was the final output? And I'm curious why existing <laughs> trading systems uh, did not solve the problem in terms of allowing you to I guess trade billions of dollars worth of derivatives. Yeah, the, yeah. The central problem of uh, Excel and VBA is that Excel is a two-dimensional spreadsheet, right? So the, your 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 data comes in, you know, two-dimensional charts. But VBA doesn't really have any matrix math operations to to work with. Mm-hmm. So if you are if you want to multiply a matrix by another matrix, or you want to add a matrix to another matrix. Uh, you just kind of have to do a bunch of loops. So I basically missed all the functionality from MATLAB, which is the other mathematical finance uh, tool that a lot of people will be familiar with. In MATLAB, you can literally just take a matrix and multiply by another matrix, and it just works fine. So I basically needed to re-implement MATLAB inside of Excel for me to do matrix math. Um, so that's essentially the start of it. Uh, then I, uh, So I did the math stuff. Then I did... Uh, statistics, which is a, you know, math that's useful. Um, so some mean standard deviation, uh, trailing average, uh, common filters, and, uh, you know, and then and so on and so forth. Um, and then you start to move into finance theory, like pricing options, pricing uh, interest rate swaps, pricing futures. And all of these are based on top of having a good math standard library, which VPA does not have. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then on top of that, uh, I was also using VBA to automate reporting, right? Like we we just had daily reports that needed to go out to like our compliance departments and you know accounting departments, whatever. Um, so what if you could you know click a button, run a script, send an email, uh, you know format things, generate charts, uh, all that stuff was done inside of VBA. And because I was not a software engineer, I was just like you know self taught like copying pasting from Stack Overflow or whatever. I put it all in one uh, four thousand line. <laughs> long uh, VBA file and uh, emailed it to myself. And, and that was <laughs> the basis of our, of our trading system. <laughs> wow. So was, was how many, how much of a day's trades do you think was going through your, your system? I mean, so uh, essentially what happens was obviously uh, that's not what a bank relies on for accounting. Yep. Um, but this was the traders. So I was on the, I was the interest rate derivatives trading desk. 
And uh, this is what the traders use to price derivatives. So what, what do we mean by price? When, when a customer comes in and wants to engage in an interest rate derivative with the bank, uh, you as the trader need to tell uh, the customer what you're going to charge them for that. And you charge them based on what you can use to hedge that interest rate derivative. So uh, other swaps, um, other futures, um, currency, currency swaps, that kind of thing, um, in order to, to take that. And then you add a margin and all that. So uh, the pricing naturally leads to trading, because if, if the customer likes your price, they're going to trade with you. So that trading starts to flow through into your portfolio where you need to do risk management, where uh, you're going to have an exposure to a number of interest rate maturities uh, across the spectrum in multiple different currencies. And you're going to risk manage that. Like, um, is, is, do I have too much concentrated risk in the three-month LIBOR versus uh, 12-month CYBOR or whatever? Uh, mm-hmm. And then you need to you know, make counteracting trades to that. So uh, we had the pricing and trading system uh, in Excel that was mirroring the official bank system, which was used for accounting purposes. And uh, the reason you have that, those things separate is because the official systems are usually very old and mm-hmm. slow and hard to use. So you want to build your own in Excel so that you can respond quicker and uh, do the calculations that you want to do. Um, so yeah, that's the thesis. Okay, gotcha. Um, so I'm actually digging into this the script right now, and it's <laughs> it's, uh, it's called Noon. It's it's, it's yeah. If I'll, I'll post the the link to this in the show notes, and it is indeed four thousand lines long. And I'm looking at line 326, uh, financial utilities. Oh, God. <laughs> Pricing. I'm not going to ask you questions. Let me, let me pull it out. Hang on. Yeah. Okay. Three, 326. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so like, you know, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm secure in the fact that like I had no formal training. So this is, it's actually pretty impressive for like someone who just, you know, winged it and is like pasted stuff together. Yeah. Uh, but like, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, it, it is like, yeah, the line 326, like this function is not indented. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> There's no test. <laughs> I was just like, if it works, it works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How, how did you? Yeah, I'm, I'm on it. Okay. No, I, I. So, this obviously looks like a very core part of the script. Like, how did you test that the this pricing function was accurate compared to the banking's, like the bank's regular systems, or you know? Oh, I mean, um, this is this is just you know academic finance. Uh, like the tangency portfolio is a function of the covariance matrix and expected returns. That that is just. Uh, straight finance. There, there's nothing to uh, do with the bank systems. Uh, this this is just an established part of financial theory that um, is not in question. So uh, mm-hmm. I just did it. And and obviously when you t- when you test, uh, <laughs> what you do is you just you know write some test data inside of an Excel sheet and then apply that function in 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 the cell. And uh, if if you get the result that you expect, then then it works. And then I, <laughs> that was that was the extent of my testing. I didn't have automated tests. Gotcha. Okay. And can you, uh, I'm, I'm scrolling down to line 505 and I see things like true Greeks and then in 527 theoretical Greeks. Like what are, what are those? I'm curious. Oh, I all right. Um, <laughs> this is, I, I know, I know what this is. Uh, it's just, uh, this is, this is very in the weeds. I, I hope people listening are at least like a little bit financially aware. Are they, uh, I, I don't know what the yeah, they education level of people. Yeah. So uh, but like, you're, you're, you're definitely not going to know this because only option traders know this. Oh yeah, no, so, that's what I'm asking uh, about. <laughs> options, exactly. Yeah, options have Greeks. So uh, okay. you, you usually price, uh, and Greeks, Greeks are derivatives of the option price relative to some kind of risk. So you normally price an option relative to the underlying 
uh, price. So, uh, for example, a very in-the-money option would have almost one-to-one correlation between the price of the option and the price of the underlying stock. Yep. Whereas an out-of-the-money option would have a much lower uh, correlation with the out-of-money stocks. So that's the first derivative of the option price to, with regards to the underlying price. But there's a lot more other factor exposures to that option. So uh, one other factor is, for example, the time relative to uh, the uh, the underlying the, the option. So the amount of time left is uh, and the and the decrease in price um, according to the number of time. That's the decay. That's the theta. That's the that's the Greek which is represented by the uh, theta, which mm-hmm. re- represents the decreasing value of the option just due to the passage of time. Like uh, as the as as time expires, as the option expires, you n- no longer can use the option. Therefore, it's therefore the option is worth zero. Uh, mm-hmm. Therefore, you know the the time function is, is some some factor, some function of that. Um, there's other options like interest rates. Uh, interest rate is the time value of money. So then your option has a uh, exposure to the, the changes in interest rates. If they go up, then your option is worth less, you know, so on and so forth, right? Like yeah. you, you kind of get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, gamma is more interesting. Gamma is the second derivative of the underlying uh, price, <laughs> the option price. Um, and and it's, all, it's all very interesting stuff. And you can actually derive all of this uh, due to the uh, option pricing formula, um, which we ta- commonly use to be Black-Scholes. Um, mm-hmm. That assumes a normal distribution in prices, and that's a terrible distrib- uh, assumption because <laughs> prices are not normally distributed and they're discontinuous. But then, but you know, it's 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 good enough. Um, so that's what, that's what a true Greek is. Is if you if you actually take a derivative uh, and you take that point estimate uh, derivative and you and you sort of feed all the current parameters through it, that's a that's a derivative that you get. Um, but a true Greek, the the problem with the problem with that assumption is that. Uh, it's only a point estimate. So, uh, if you if you take a, <laughs> it's it's this is the difference between um, you, you you determine the the steepness of a slope by just like uh, taking that single point, or you take two points and you measure that distance, and then you divide over the the distance of the points. So right. the true Greek actually takes two real values. And and takes the and, and gives you that difference in price. So that's what a true Greek does. It, it actually calculates uh, at a at a particular spot price uh, what the corresponding option price is, and then and then that is uh, assumed to be a Greek. Um, and that is uh, more precise than theoretical Greeks because um, it takes into account some amount of convexity. Uh, the 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 idea that your uh, option risks are nonlinear. <laughs> Have I lost you? <laughs> No, no, and and it's all based on historical, like actual data, right? Not not forecasted or whatever. Uh, these are all these are all forecasts. Um, oh, okay. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, historical historical data is irrelevant for for pricing uh, some of these uh, risks. Oh, I see. So you're plotting out. <laughs> so you're, when you plot out the curve, you're looking at specific points on the curve to calculate the true Greek. Is that? Yes, sir. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. All right. Um, all right. Yeah. That's that's actually yeah. That's actually also very true. You want to price against uh, the other things that you can hedge against. So yeah, I mean, you know, it, it takes a couple of years of of uh, investment banking trading to 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 learn all this stuff. But uh, that's how uh, a lot of your interest rate risks are managed under the under the hood. If you ever were curious about how banks trade and manage the risk of your mortgages all the way down to your credit card loans, uh, it's all it's all run by this stuff. There's that's- trillions of dollars a day traded uh, through London, through Singapore uh, in interest rate derivatives. 
that's amazing when you say it's all managed this is it's all managed through scripts like this that sean wrote years ago <laughs> yeah i mean like uh, you know hopefully they, they've done better since then but like i was the first to do it like okay like they definitely like had not um <laughs> they had a worse version before me and after i left okay. they had a better version and hopefully they <laughs> they have embraced real software engineering because like you know the the real limit is is what's going on right it's is that the traders needed better systems but the bank did not have software engineers to provide to to build proper systems so the traders had to learn traders like me had to learn how to code mm -hmm. uh and and make our own systems and uh this is what we got but you know once banks and financial in the companies uh, you know, start taking software seriously, uh, then there should be a lot more investment in in uh, financial software. Mm -hmm. And and you you mentioned that you uh, some people before you had written scripts and was so did you have previous VBA scripts to work off of or did you just do this completely from scratch all four thousand lines? Uh, yeah, I mean this, I mean look like what does what does from scratch mean right? Like if right. I copied and yeah. pasted some piece of code, is it mine or is it theirs? Um, Arguably, yeah. I you know, it, arguably it's theirs, but also uh, I needed to copy the right piece of code. Uh, right. So, <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this is math. Like for for, for yeah. me, this is just math. Like the the how to th how to do theoretical pricing of a digital option of a Greek, uh, sorry, a Greek of a digital option is not in doubt. Like the, this, there's there's re uh, there's you know resolved research on on how to do that. Um, the there, there's no judgment call there except in um, the the design of the the functionality uh, and how to use that inside of a, a real application like uh, the ones that I worked on. Mm -hmm. uh, so all so I'm looking like uh, so you wrote some like you mentioned you wrote like math functions and statistic functions like the um, uh, analysis of variance and stuff like that. So were all those like existing kind of like pieces of code that you found on the internet then you copied over and tested or did you actually write all those by hand or by computer? Uh, no, I mean, no, like I'm not smart enough to come up with ANOVA. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, I just, you know, I, these are mathematical formulas. Like some of them like, were actually just like copy from homework that I've done before from, oh, from wow. like, <laughs> finance finance class. And then you just translate it into VBA, right? Like they, they'll, they'll have mathematical notation and you just got to translate it. So actually, I, I think I had like one of those things where, um, I like just copied the paper that it was from, and then I just copied the pseudocode, and I just converted line by line into VBA, uh, and I don't remember what it was anymore. Q, uh, QR decomposition uh, of a matrix. So a matrix can be represented in multiple uh, decompositions, and QR is sometimes useful. I don't even remember what it's useful for. But it was <laughs> useful at one point. That's that's funny when you when you cite college papers in the comments of the code. That's when you know things are legit. No, <laughs> things are real. Things are yeah. real. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, uh, uh, but you know, so you know, what things that you learn in school is useful. Um, and something that I I hope that people are exposed to is principal components analysis, and that is how to reduce the dimensionality of a problem. Like, let's say you have a uh, hundred. Uh, 100 rows of, of data and, and 100 columns of data mm -hmm. um, and there's some patterns in that data and you want to you want to know what what the moving what the principal what the main factors are in that data principal components analysis is a very good way of reducing the dimensions to all right here's the here's the thing that drives most of these numbers up and down uh, here's the second thing that's completely uncorrelated uh, to the other thing here's a third thing that's uncorrelated to the first two and if you take one two and three all together uh, then you manage 
let's say something like 90% of, of the risks and the rest, the remaining 10% is essentially noise. So what you've done is you essentially reduce the 10 by 10 matrix to three, um, to, to three, three by 10 or whatever you call it. Uh, and, and so it's, it's much more manageable and you can do it much cheaper and you can net out the noise of all the other, the other stuff. So uh, that's a lot of what uh, large scale portfolio management sounds like, which is um, reducing that data, but um, it's the same uh, philosophy as image compression when you compress it, it compares a large, very high quality image down, um, you just want to take the main um, main colors, the main image, the main uh, lines. Uh, it's the same idea. You just take the principal, principal components, uh, delete all the noise and reinflate those principal components. Uh, and then you have a pretty much the same picture for a lower quality, but uh, you get you know 90% of, of what the, the image was about. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, I think um, maybe one more question about the script and we can move on because uh, I know this is yeah. fascinating for our, our, our listeners or at least it is for me. <laughs> so, um, small group of listeners. <laughs> yeah, that, that, this actually might be more relevant to what we're talking about later, but for on line um, 1864, um, you have a bunch of stuff that says file input output utilities. Uh, it looks like this is uh -huh. stuff for setting up um, email, automatic emails of um, analysis to people. And I'm curious yeah. why... I mean, this is in this is 2012 or 2013 when you worked on this. To, uh, 2012, yeah. 2012. I'm curious why you decided to do the email sending in VBA versus potentially other like I don't know if Zapier was around them, but other tools that could have done this um, in an easier fashion, perhaps. Uh, chances are I didn't know about them, and okay. so <laughs> I mean the data is right there in Excel. Like right. all you want to do is copy that data and then send it by email, right? what other tool would integrate this natively within Excel and capture it with high fidelity? Yeah. Um, you know, and, 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 and then Excel has, uh, it turns out Excel has integration with Outlook. So right. from your, from your same VBA code, you can literally press a button and, and it would snapshot that, that, that report that you're working on and send it via email. That's pretty useful. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. I was thinking like more broadly, like you could, <laughs> you could push all the data into like the cloud somewhere into a CSV and then that CSV gets pushed into some other system, but probably too many. Too yeah. Many I, I mean, I didn't know how to do that. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, one, I think, I think, yeah. I think a lot of this no code wizardry that's going on is this definitely an education or, or um, it has to open minds because right. uh, you know, by default, you're going to try to stay within the same tool. Right. So, uh, this idea that you can hook together a bunch of tools, I think it's, it's definitely a new ground for a lot of people and then they have to be taught how to do it. Um, mm -hmm. So. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's move on from the script. And again, I'll post this in the show notes so you can take a look through all 4,000 <laughs> lines of code if you want and ask tweet Sean with any questions you have about his script that he wrote eight years ago. <laughs> Uh, there was a, by the way, there was a version of this. I, I can't find it anymore. I think I just like wrote it in a, in a sheet and then never sent it to myself. That, by the way, that was my version control, right? I, I emailed myself because uh, I didn't have, I didn't know Git. Um, anyway, yeah. uh, there, there was a version of this that actually like uh, read uh, like uh, text to speech um, oh, cool. for fun. It's just like, yeah, there, there's like functionality within Excel to, to, <laughs> to convert text to speech. Wow. Uh, I don't think I was using it for anything serious, but it was just like a fun Easter egg that I built in for some form. <laughs> Yeah, I can tell the uh, I can tell the versioning that went through this file because if you look in lines four through fifteen in the script, it's like version one point yeah, one yeah. down to version one point twenty nine. <laughs> that's pretty good, right? You know, I you know, in absence of Git, like that, that's uh, I use use comments. <laughs> yeah, these are these are essentially commit messages, more or less. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I want it to be accountable to myself, you know, still. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so aside from, aside from scripting, which you obviously did a lot of with in your, in your finance experience, what skills did you take over from Excel to your, you know, into now your kind of coding uh, experience? If any. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, it's funny because uh, I, I definitely migrate. So I moved from Excel to Haskell. Um, that's the that's the option pricing. I mean, Haskell is like a pure functional language. Uh, it's really great for computing in parallel. And so when you do structured price structured options, which are exotic options, um, you have to run scenario analysis, and you need to do it in massively parallel format, and you cannot do it in in uh, Excel. Mm -hmm. And then from that to Python for more data science number crunching. Um, and and, and now, I'm in, now I'm working in JavaScript, uh, mostly for front-end applications. The lessons I learned, uh, honestly, like still there's a lot of stuff out there that does not beat Excel. Excel, Interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Excel is so powerful uh, in its simplicity, like billions of people can use it. Uh, and a lot of people cannot code. And uh, I, programmers actually spend a lot of time uh, complaining about how bad programming is and how we need to make programming more accessible, like the creation of software, right? Like I was creating software in Excel uh, and I don't see that as any different from from using code or using Excel. These are all forms of software and mm -hmm. like which one am I more productive in? In Excel, I get both my database and my user interface uh, at the same time. Whereas uh, in, in, soft, in programming, usually, you know, programming your backend and programming your front end are different jobs. And, uh, it, and they're not as productive as, as Excel. Um, they, you can, they can look better. They can work on more platforms. You don't have to run Microsoft Excel. You can, you can just go to a URL. That's mm -hmm. great. Um, but I think, uh, and certainly that's what Airtable is doing, right? Put Excel on the internet. <laughs> right. um, but I think, uh, and Coda, I mean, I, actually, I, I haven't used Coda, so I, I, I'm a little bit... Uh, <laughs> I, I hope I, I don't like uh, unintentionally, you know, insult Coda in any way. I oh no, no that's it. fine. <laughs> this, this, this is um, my this is my my show or whatever. So yeah, yeah it's, it's your cool. show. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, you know, you know, I think I think the the lesson is the lesson is that like people ultimately want access to their data, the control over their data, and you don't really care how you do it. And mm -hmm. uh, a lot of a lot of programmers are very just very precious about like how to write clean code and how to do things right and like how do you make api design great and what's the best framework at the end of the day people don't care like are you productive or not are you shipping features right. i care about or not mm -hmm. um and uh, i you know programmers need to get over get over themselves because uh scrub like me in 2012 with no <laughs> no formal software experience could make uh, a functioning uh, you know interest rate derivatives risk pricing system and uh and yeah i mean you know people need to need to know that, that that's what matters at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Uh, well, I, mean, I want to dig a little more into your um, kind of coding career over the last few years. You're one of the mods for the React.js subreddit. I was. I oh, just you gave were. it up. Oh, mm -hmm. okay. What? Um, how did you get into that position? And yeah. why did you want to be a mod? Yeah. Um, I got into that position basically because I was active. 
and uh, there were there were basically some fights going on. So, uh, you know, the people were complaining about frameworks and bashing others, and generally being mean on the internet, which is which yeah. is the thing that happens. Yep. And so one of the existing mods, Danny Bramov, uh, who who is like kind of a, a, the central figure in the React community. So you know, uh, he, he's he's you know fairly famous in that in that world. He just DM'd me, and he was like, "Hey, next time you see this, can you do something about it?" And I was like, "I can't. I'm not a mod." And then he just like paused for a bit, went away, and he said, "Now you are." And, <laughs> you know, nice. and, so, so that's how I got it. There was no application. I was just, it was just talking to him. I mean, he trusted me from like you know stuff that we did before. So, uh, yeah. and then and and so there was and the reason why was I just took it as a challenge. You know, uh, it was a reasonably large community at the time, uh, yeah. 30, 30, 40,000 people, uh, and I want to see. It was a little bit of community service. It was a little bit of uh, wanting to give back to the community that I was part of. And then also a little bit of self-promotion, right? Like I could now say that I, I, I helped to run the community f uh, from, you know, whatever it was when I started to it's over 200,000 people now. Wow. Um, you see, people say, wow, but it's like not that big a deal. It's, it's really not. It's, it was, it was going to grow anyway without, with or without me. I just helped to, you know, clean up the, the rough edges. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, and, and, and so it was, it was just a good experience overall because I also learned a lot of React while serving the community, being staying on top of news, answering right. questions. And I think that people uh, scale by the, their, the size of their, uh, what they're exposed to. And so you should intentionally ex expose yourself to more ideas and more questions and answering, just simply answering questions. So I, I was the guy, I, I started this this trend of like, it's like a beginner's monthly thread. So you could, uh, no question was too dumb. You could just ask your questions. And I just promised that I would respond to every question. So there are some months in which we had 500 questions and answers a month. And most of them were by me. And you learn a lot just doing that. You learn a lot more than you would have on your own because mm -hmm. you are just exposed to other people's questions that you would maybe have taken a couple of years to reach. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Uh, kind of a random question about React is I remember when React hooks came out and there was generally positive uh, reactions to React hooks, mm -hmm. but with any framework, people get like very defensive. Like sometimes it's like, oh, I'm not used to using this this way. I still want to use my, you know, use state the way I use it. How did you, given that you're part of the community, like how did you navigate that situation or when new like updates come out that are potentially changing the way the framework works? Um, so I, 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 I was fortunate enough to had some prior uh, exposure to it just because uh, okay. I was working with Dan on, on the docs. Right. Um, the, I mean, it was, it was just an unmitigated, unmitigated success in my opinion. Like it, it made, it, it solved some of the key pains of React um, and it made React a lot easier to write. And, and to be fair, React was already a lot easier to write compared to a, a lot of other frameworks. Right. Um, so this was just like a quantum leap in terms of uh, the abstraction that uh, UI programmers use to write their stateful applications. And mm -hmm. then it quickly spread to view to Swift UI was uh, directly credits uh, React for, for their inspiration. And Swift is uh, the Apple's native programming language for, for iOS. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's just a very successful paradigm change. Uh, a lot of people don't like change. They don't like, uh, it had trade-offs. It wasn't a pure win, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of people could not get over the new negatives uh, and uh, compared to the old negatives, which it did solve. So uh, it was a slightly messy transition, but I think overall it was a pretty successful one. Okay, cool. Um, one last question about your um, 
coding experience like i know you you self-taught yourself how to code you taught yourself taught how to do vba scripting and stuff yeah. were there were you did you take any specific training or classes or was it all just kind of working on hacking projects together to learn javascript react etc uh i only did that one class in college where it was, it was okay. open operations and info management where they teach excel uh a little bit um and then the rest was just googling yeah so I, i'm sure that you'll find really bad code in there uh, and and um i mean what can i say like i just was trying to solve a problem. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to show off. I wasn't trying to be the best coder in the world. I was just trying to solve a problem. Right, yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's the way a lot of um, self-taught coders basically become coders, essentially. Yeah. It's pretty funny because like then then a lot of, you know, because you solve the problem, then your your, your, your programs and your, and your patterns get held up to be like a, a perfect, you know, so, some example code. Uh, right. But really, you know, <laughs> you just, you just like, we're, we're trying stuff out along the way. Um, so, I mean, it's good to just throw away everything and start from scratch because then you get a chance to, to start from the beginning and work out from first principles. And I think that's, that's very key for uh, renewal, like good software engineering. Oh, and, and by the way, like, that's one of the reasons I stepped down from, from my, my role, because I believe also uh, that renewal in communities is important. Um, mm. You know, and in broader society, like li having limited term limits is a good idea. <laughs> and uh, and I enforce that in, in my own uh, projects. Oh, that's great. That's great to know. Uh, shifting gears a little bit to, I, 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 I saw this in, I think, something on your, your bio. And you mm -hmm. referenced um, Hasib Qureshi's advice on negotiating. Oh, yeah. And I'm curious how you came across that post and then how you actually utilize it in your... Um, I guess getting a new job and negotiating a salary. I don't know how I came across it. I mean, if you're on the internet and a developer at a certain time, you definitely heard about his post because it just went viral. Yes. Uh, well, also, I think I think he just had a unique story, right? He came out of a boot camp and he got like a two hundred and sixty thousand dollar offer from Airbnb. That's pretty huge. Uh, that that just never happens. Like you're you're, right. you're lucky if you come out and you make three figures, uh, six figures uh, right. from a bootcamp. Um, so so yeah, he he had an awesome headline, and then he actually had awesome content to to give that along with that headline. And the the advice was like a ten step guide to to getting a to negotiating your offer, mm -hmm. and I essentially used that in negotiating my offer with AWS. Um, I would not say I'm good at it. <laughs> it just was helpful, and I think that. Probably word for word, that negotiation advice in, in his post, as well as the negotiation advice from Patrick McKenzie, as well as the negotiation tips and, and templates from Josh Duty, those are the three resources I use in my book for mm. uh, telling software engineers how to negotiate for their jobs. And word for word, that is going to be the highest value financially because you know you can send a single email, it, that will take you 30 minutes to write. And that will get you five thousand dollars increase, ten thousand dollars increase. I, I increased my offer by fifty thousand from the original offer that I got. Wow. Um, and uh, I mean, how much of it was them? How much of it was me? I don't know. You know, but it helped. It's more right. than zero. <laughs> and I think I think the first the first piece of advice is that you should negotiate, right? Like that. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people just are are happy to get the job, and they're like, if I if I try to you know, ask for more, they'll seem greedy. I don't want to seem greedy. And they're, they're nice enough to give me a job. I should just take it. And uh, and I think I definitely empathize with how that feels. That's that's the way I took my first job. Um, but 
as you sort of progress in your career and you're, you're more and more in demands, you realize that there are trade-offs and there are opportunities and you should, you, you know, you, you, you should try to fight for what you deserve because you're going to work hard anyway. You might as well get paid for it. Uh, and also that people expect you to negotiate. The, the initial offer made to you is sli- always slightly has a, has a margin on top to, mm-hmm. uh, to make some leeway for, for when you have in, inevitably negotiate. So when, when you don't negotiate, people actually might think less of you because they're like, oh, this person doesn't, doesn't know how this game is played. Yeah. I, I remember when I was in the recruiting phase, I would actually depending on what phase I was in, in terms of talking with recruiters and like moving to the next stage, I was actually looking at the blog post and like scrolling down and saying, okay, I'm at this stage now. What do I do? I'm at this stage now. What do I do? Yeah. 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 Uh, and you know, like realistically, you're not going to hit every stage right? In, in that, in that thing. It's, it's an ideal rather than a precise instruction manual, but at least it gets you to think about what's, what's possible. Uh, yes. And quite realistically, a lot, there are a lot of companies that are just going to say no, but at least you tried. And I think, um, you know, a, a little bit, you at least had more chances of success than, than if you had not tried. Yeah. Hasib, if you're out there, these two people on this call have benefited from your content. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see, what else? Um, well, I was going to bring up the no code is a lie post. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if you want to talk about that. Okay. So yeah, there is a, later in the post, I think as you're summarizing your thoughts, you talked about the shortcomings of convention over configuration. I'm curious, can you talk, tell us, tell me more about why you thought that, that the phrase kind of needs a refresh? Because it's, it's, it's tied into that comment earlier about how programmers get very precious about uh, their, their programming styles mm-hmm. and the end user doesn't care. Right. <laughs> the end user <laughs> just cares. Did you, did you put out something useful or not? And so, in, in programming, I think we, we have a lot of swings back and forth between functional, object-oriented, object uh, immutable, uh, reactive. They're, they're all buzzwords, you know. Uh, and convention, convention over configuration is a term from the Ruby on Rails world where the, the big insight was that instead of configuration configuring a bunch of things, we just have conventions that everyone follows and therefore all your projects look the same. Therefore, there's no learning curve because, uh, you, well, you just need to learn it once and then there, there's a set structure and there's yeah. a set rails way to do things. Yeah, model view uh, controller. The problem with that, the, the problem with that is that it gets very inflexible um, <laughs> yep. and uh, does have a lot, there's, there's some unnecessary boilerplate if you, if you just don't use some of these things. Um, and it's really up to careful design. And sometimes I, I think people switch, switch back and forth between convention and configuration quite a bit. Um, so the ultimate thing that we care about is actually creation. Like, are we creating more uh, or do we, are we just measuring, you know, um, the amount of lines that we code or like the, the, the beauty of our code? Like we, I don't really care about the beauty of the code. Like I, I care about <laughs> are, we, are we shipping, you know, effective solutions to, to our users. And, uh, and so, so um, I, I actually don't remember what I said in that as my conclusion to that line of thought. Is it like creation over code? Did I say that? Uh, I actually don't remember either. I was just, I read that part. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I want to talk to him about that. So I don't yeah, know. I think, I think it was creation over code, uh, to, to, to emphasize yeah, yeah, that, that brings up, that, uh, that, I don't, yeah, yeah. It's because this was a, this was about no code. Right. And yes. a lot of developers d- dismiss no code because they're like, you can't make serious apps with no code. Right. Eventually the, 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 the tired line is yes, it's good to get started with no code wise, but then you can't make serious apps with it. And I think 
because they define serious apps as it must be made with code, that's why they, they conflate these two things. Mm. And really what we care about is creation. Like, are you creating and, and what tools are you creating and whether whether you're more productive with this tool versus the others. So that makes the makes creation more inclusive of no-code tools like uh, Webflow, which is this is the blog I was writing on, but then also Coda and, and Airtable and what else, Zapier. Because mm-hmm. um, they help you create. Excel is creation over code. Because <laughs> you can just click and type numbers and yes. type formulas and that's it. Uh, so, so I, I'm much, I'm much more liberal in my opinion of, of what, uh, I do, what it is I do. I don't define myself as coding. I, I define myself as creating. And sometimes mm. it happens to, to take code. Sometimes it happens to take no code. Mm. I like that. I define myself as coding. I don't define myself as coding. I define myself as creating. That's a great, great catchphrase. <laughs> nah. <laughs> um, that's true though. I, I think it's true. No, I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, I know we were, uh, I want to get you back on your, get, like you get your time back. Maybe one last question is more about um, what you're currently working on. You're, uh, so you're, you're just correct. You're a dev, you're dev advocate at AWS Amplify. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, so one, one thing that I hear about a lot with dev, developer advocacy programs is a challenge with measurement. It's like, how do we measure whether if we're reaching out to developer, if, uh, if our developers are engaging with us correctly, if we're actually getting the word out about our, our platform out correctly. Um, curious how you and your team are able to measure your efforts. Uh, we do it very poorly. Uh, we have a <laughs> spreadsheet nice. where, we, where we put some numbers according to uh, alongside things that we do. And then okay. bigger number is better. Smaller yep. number is not so bad, not so good. And and then we show it to our management and then the management goes like, yep. All right. Looks good. And then that's it. That's about it. Okay. Um, that is the stone age of, you know, developer relations metrics measurement. Um, and mainly because developer relations programs are expensive. I'm, yes. I'm expensive. Other like my coworkers are expensive. We travel a lot. Uh, we only seem to have fun and it's very hard to, to justify that, that expense. Um, but I think it, it's just very, juvenile to equate view count with effectiveness mm-hmm. right because you can get a lot of views in something uh, but it could be very shallow and you might not have a lot of actual paying customers which is the thing that you care about i mean it's a it's a it's part of it right it's one of the equations of getting to paying customers um, but you can consciously decrease your <laughs> your impact by just going for a bunch of low hanging fruit, uh, lowest common denominator content, like jokes and memes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That's going to be more popular for sure. But does that actually help your business? Probably not. Um, so, so then, then, then you're like, okay, so I, you know, if I, if I go to the other extreme and I say, I only care about paying customers, then every uh, event that I do, every uh, interaction that I have with the outside world needs to have a tracking number, right? Right. So here's my here's my affiliate code, uh, <laughs> and like please use this when you sign up. Then then I'll then then I'll get you know uh, I'll have proof that I converted a paying customer. But what does that do to your interactions with everyone? It becomes extremely inauthentic. Mm-hmm. It becomes uh, very transactional, and um, it's yeah <laughs> nobody wants right. to do that either. Uh, right. Which is all to say that this is a hard problem. Um, I don't think that uh, I know the answer. I don't think that. My boss knows the answer. I don't think that anyone in the industry knows the answer because I'm at mm-hmm. AWS and 
AWS has not figured it out. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a startup called Orbit.love. Uh, mm-hmm. Very, 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 very young. Okay, so so just treat this, take this with a <laughs> pinch of salt. They are trying to quantify developer engagement by four uh, levels. So it's like mm. observer, uh, member, like contributor, promoter, some, something like that. There's four levels. I don't know what the names are, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, concentric circles of engagement. Mm-hmm. So if your if your goal is to just count them and then move them into closer circles. That seems like a good, a generally good idea that uh, is unobjectionable from both sides of the spectrum of extreme commercial versus extreme reach. So I think that's, that's, those are, those are interesting approaches. Um, the straight answer is, I don't know. I'm, I'm here while it, while it's, uh, and while it lasts, because it's a, it's a fantastic job for someone mm-hmm. in the middle of their career, because you get to code and you get to meet a lot of people. So you get to grow your network. Um, and you get to be paid to learn in public, which is a big thing of mine. Yeah. Um, so uh, I don't think it's it's something I want to do forever. I don't think it's a thing people should do forever, because you're kind of a you know sort of outsourced marketing, uh, insourced marketing department, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, eventually, you know, you should you should try to build instead of just market all the time. Right. And, and so, but I, th- I think it's a good um, you know mid career move. Um, yeah. That's that's kind of my take on it. <laughs> cool. No, that's, that's that's definitely useful. I'll definitely look up Orbit.love and uh, post about it in the show notes. Um, I guess one last question is: What are you? What are pa- projects that you're working on right now that you're super passionate about? You know, in work, outside of work, um, and also, I guess, back to your point about constantly having renewal with uh, maybe your communities and what whatnot. What are things you're looking forward to, like next? Yeah. Um, so I have a bunch of, I guess, side project things. So between my uh, changing jobs and, and starting at Amazon, I actually wrote a book, um, which is uh, the Coding Career Handbook, which is mm-hmm. all my sort of non-technical career advice. Um, and and uh, that's still selling and I'm maintaining a community for that. And I you know, am hoping to release a second version next year. So that's a, essentially a new job that I've created for myself, you know, uh, being a part-time author and, and, and all that. That's awesome. Um, and then uh, I've switched from React to Svelte. So I'm helping to grow the Svelte community. One of the reasons for leaving the React subreddit is because I, I, I felt that it wasn't honest for me to keep uh, being identified with React when I, when I actually use Svelte more. So uh, I'm actually, I started and and helping to grow the Svelte Society. So that's Svelte Society on Twitter and, and on YouTube. And uh, that's, a, that's a new community of developers. I think my thing is now is developer tooling and developer community. Mm-hmm. Um, I am doing some angel investing. I, 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 did my, I just did my first couple angel investments in uh, friends, uh, uh, you know, startups run by friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a scout for a, a VC fund. So I, I do help to source uh, more investments. And I, I do like to see, be involved and be a supporter of uh, new startups that are trying to solve interesting problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Uh, yeah, I, I write for my for my blog, and I think that's that's a core part of uh, something I do for the rest of my life. So I, mm-hmm. I intend to uh, continue working on myself, continue working on uh, great ideas, and sharing them with the world. And uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully that they'll be good enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, your writing is prolific, which is how people find you. So it's it's really amazing what you do. Thank you. Um, yeah. From my end, it really is not. 
uh, I disappoint myself with my own writing. Um, mm. And I want to do more. And I, I can't because I am lazy. And I also take on too many projects. But uh, yeah, what I what I can do is is good enough for other people. So I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm also grateful for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, in terms of the being a scout for a VC fund, like how is that like an official role? How did I, I yeah. never heard of that role before? I'm curious. Can you talk talk yeah. about that? Uh, it's an informal program. I think Sequoia maybe started that. Okay. Basically, they uh, recognize people in the community who have access to deals that they may not have access to. So they're they're saying, "Hey, you guys are smart. Uh, we trust you. We trust your judgment." And we're gonna we're gonna give you unofficial status as like some parts part of our family, and what what happens here is you tell us what interesting startups are worth investing in, mm. and we'll invest and if we invest in them because there's a you know obviously they, they get to decide if we invest in them then uh, and and the investment works out then you get a part of uh, our, our profits so mm. there's no money down from me, and I just get to introduce them to other people. And so it's like a semi-referral bonus type of, type of deal. Mm -hmm.